And David actually beat me in a two nights tango game, which sent me below 2700. And that was actually the last time I think that I was below 2700. I think I was just sort of stated that I think it's also the last time that I'll ever be below or the, it's the last time or that I'll ever have been rated below 2700. Because I have a feeling that I'm not going to be playing chess uh, if my rating dips that low in the future. So Dave will probably go down in the history books. Hey everyone, welcome to Dojo Talks. We have a very special guest today, Grandmaster Hikaru Nakamura, who's going to join us to talk about um, many things, but generally speaking, we're talking about the chess economy as a whole, what it's like to be a professional player. Um, Hikaru, of course, has been at the top for, for many years, and we're very excited to hear his perspective on uh, many things like what it's like and uh, the, uh, yeah, the economic side of chess. Um, actually, Carl, first question for you, just to kind of start things off. First of all, thank you for for joining us. It's good to be here. Um, you know, I I did want to start like one thing. I think people are wondering is, you know, how how much do I listen to podcasts or how often do it do I do these yeah, things? Okay. And I do listen sometimes. Um, but actually, there's a there's a very specific instance which um, I sort of really started listening to you guys uh, fully, and that was during this 960 event in St. Louis about I think a month and a half ago. Um, and I forget which day it was, but it was late at night after after one of the rounds. And I decided to actually play some 960 on chess.com against this guy, Nicholas Theodoru. Um, someone can probably go and fact check and find the exact date for this. But while I was playing him, uh, I don't even remember how I how it happened. But I basically put your podcast on in the background, sort of like background noise or something to listen to while I was playing those games. And um, and pretty much since then, I've been listening um, on and off to your podcast. So you guys do you guys do a great job. And I think also one of the things that distinguishes you guys or one of the things that also interested me in terms of coming on here is that you guys are very much coming at it from an outsider perspective. I think there are a lot of podcasts out there. Of course, there's like the C squared with Fabiano, but it's very much like a professional level. It feels like it's more geared towards a certain audience where I feel like from what I've heard you guys talk about, it's more towards a casual fan, someone who's a passing interest in the game, in the terms and what is going on, generally speaking. So uh, hopefully I can shed some insight on a lot of different topics. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. Um, my My first question for you, just to kind of start things off, like I was wondering, how do you choose events to uh, to play in these days? Like you play the 960 event, um, mm -hmm. Grand Swiss. Congrats, by the way, on the Grand Swiss <laughs> qualifying for the candidates. I think, yeah, we'd love to ask you about that as well. Yeah, so I think to, to start off, of course, you know, my, my career can be broken down into probably two two segments. There's a segment essentially as a professional player. Um, once I broke 2700, roughly around 2009, 2010, as I mentioned before we started, um, uh, one of your one of your fellow uh, fellow podcasters, David Pruis, he, he holds a special distinction. Um, I actually crossed 2700. I think it was in the summer of 2008. And um, then I played this national open. I believe it's national open in Las Vegas. Um, and and David actually beat me in a two nights tango game, which sent me below 2700. And that was actually the last time I think that I was below 2700. I think I was just sort of stated that I think it's also the last time that I'll ever be below or the, it's the last time or that I'll ever have been rated below 2700. Because I have a feeling that I'm not going to be playing chess uh, if my rating dips that low in the future. So Dave will probably go down in the history books. Um, so yeah, so basically my career, there's the the professional player, which roughly it, it starts around 2009 till about I would say 2000 end of 2019 very clearly. Now I was very lucky because as I was 
um, becoming very strong. I broke 2,700. This, this also coincided with um, the rise of chess in St. Louis when you had Rex Singfield, who retired from um, the financial world, moved back to St. Louis. I think the club opened in July of 2008, if I'm not mistaken. And then the 2009 U.S. Championship was the first major event held there. And so I was very lucky it sort of coincided. But from 2009 onwards, it seemed like there, it, it, there were a lot of things that originated in St. Louis. First, there was the U.S. Championship, led to U.S. Women's Championship, other events. There was also the um, the Grand Chester, which started in St. Louis. I think initially it started with the Singfield Cup um, in like 2012, if I remember correctly. I think Magnus, uh, Levon, myself, and Gata played. Maybe I have the years confused. But um, at any rate, it started with that. It led to many more tournaments. And once the Grand Chess Tour really became established around 2014, 2015, I would start playing a lot of tournaments. I would play usually one tournament in January. It would be Gibraltar or Tata Steel, either the Open um, or the Closed Tournament. Um, normally in April, there was the U.S. Championship. Actually, let me backtrack. In, in February, usually there was an event in Zurich. March, I would take off. April, there was the U.S. Championship, so that's already three events. And then usually the Grand Chess Tour kicked off around, like, May or June. There was usually an event in, like, Paris. Um, there was an event, I think, in Belgium, if I remember correctly. And and it sort of covered the whole summer. It started in May, ran through about August, September, concluding with the Singfold Cup. There was also, at the time, a grand final held in London at the end of the year um, as well, I think, as the London Chess Classic. Um, but normally I would play, I would say, on average, if we're looking at just, like, classical or serious rapid events since they sort of were already a little bit uh intermingled probably about 11 to 12 events a year um and this is with events averaging at least i would say a minimum of five plus days anywhere from five to probably five days to about 14 days or two weeks um so normally it's like 11 or 12 events now once the pandemic occurred of course everything changed i'm sure we'll, we'll talk about that as a separate segment um but, but nowadays, the way that I look at it is very different. For me, I look at tournaments, essentially, what are the organizers doing for chess? That is probably the most important thing for me. So with Norway Chess, for example, which I play, technically, it is part of the FIDE circuit, a new new circuit that was event that was um that was created this year for qualification to the candidates so i play that event mainly though because the organizers have been organizing that event for many years now it is an event that does not really have a major benefactor or sponsor behind it. i think almost every year they're trying to get new sponsors i think in the past they've had some water companies they had a, a knitting company that i think was that was involved i think there's a tractor company a lot of different sort of sponsors over the years to keep the tournament going it's not something that's relying on one individual and i think that sort of speaks to how well they've done that they can keep such a high level level event running um for so many years despite sort of the instability you could say um when it comes to sponsorship so like norway is one event that i played mainly because of the organization um i did play tata steel the india event last year um and that's also because i feel the organizer of the tata steel events in india and uh vikon zay Jeroen vandenberg is another person who's trying his best to raise the profile of chess despite having what i would say are limited funds to some degree he is very much uh beholden to the sponsors that he has and the budget that he has is not something that can be expanded um you know not to like start drama or controversy but controversy but i think certainly if you go back maybe one or two years there was definitely some talk around ali reza Farouge and why he didn't play in the event there uh, i think it was a monetary issue so uh vandenberg is another play another um organizer who i'm uh very supportive of so i have considered playing in some of those events but besides that i mean the only other other criteria i have um is essentially does the event qualify for is it a qual qualification for the candidates and so um when i when i played in the grand swiss it was a qualification when i played in um what, what else did i played doha that was also to 
potentially qualify via the circuit or via the rating, whatever it might be. Um, but also even in Doha, when I played there, um, I feel that they're trying to restart a term that happened several years ago. I think it was canceled at the time. They're trying to bring it back. So it's another event where I feel like the organizers and the organization is very good. Um, and I think it's very positive for chess if there are more tournaments in the Middle East as well. So uh, mainly it's whether it's a qual qualification for the candidates and whether it's uh, whether I sort of like the organizers and what they're trying to do for chess as a whole. Yeah. Do you feel like um, chess organizing is kind of thankless? Like they're often just, you know, at best, like breaking even with the event. Actually, we were just talking about your video with um, you're reacting to the uh, the chess bar video about the uh, the tournaments and the, the cost for grandmasters. And I'm just thinking like for organizers also, it's like very hard to make money on a, on a chess event. Yeah, I, I mean, I think certainly that's one of the most difficult things um, with, with organizing tournaments. And I think, you know, also broadly speaking, I've, I've been quite critical of FIDE over time. But I think that at the end of the day, it is very difficult and it's very thankless. There is not a lot of money in it. Um, obviously, for the players, if you finish at the very top, you do very well. But pretty much everyone else, whether it's the organizers, the arbiters, the other players, uh, they're doing it more because they love the game or it's sort of like for the passion that they have. Um, for chess so so yeah i think it's very very difficult it's very thankless and i think at the end of the day it's a good thing that there are there are there are people who are crazy enough to want to um to want to organize tournaments because certainly the organizers are not making money for the most part in fact i think i, I think most chess events even online for that matter are not profitable um as a whole yeah can you tell us something about um what what qualifies as being a good organizer like when people are doing you're saying something that's like good for chess what's the direction that, well, that I, you're looking for yeah so i think for starters it's um how much visibility is there for the tournament how much is it out there on social media obviously um in the, in the post-pandemic world uh most people get their news about chess online they do get it very specifically say on instagram or twitch TikTok, or even twitter slash x um, so it's sort of the visibility that's out there. I think I think whether that is internationally on social media or even whether that is like domestically. So for example, with Norway Chess, um, it was actually on national TV. I think it's very much in the newspapers. There, there's a lot of coverage of it, and most of the people who were in Stavanger, just the locals that I ran into, knew that there was a chess tournament going on. So I think that's the first thing. Also, I think the conditions, like what is the playing playing site like? What are the what what is the hotel like? Um, and in general, like, again, every event is different. So you can't just like use one model because we'll, we'll get into this when we talk about juniors and other parts of the economy. But certainly like with Norway chess, um, you know, they, they had they had cars there so they could take the players to the site. The food was covered at the hotel. Um, rooms were great. So as, as a whole, all those things were very good. I would say in Doha as well. Very similar. Transportation was good. Playing hall was good. Food was good. Um, and really, there. I mean, I guess in Doha, there's some drama related to Magnus, but but overall, a very, very drama free experience. OK, so both providing a good experience to the players, but also very important is how it's sort of reaching out mm -hmm. to the community. Well, yeah, I mean, I think also, again, all these topics probably get interspersed and they they, they all kind of blend together. But I, I think certainly for me, when I when I look towards the future of chess, I think. Uh, 
everyone is getting their news online. Um, and I think organizers, and th this actually applies to Chess World as a whole, have to understand that power of reaching out. And, and you know, I think it's very, it's very important also that like people like Levy or myself make a big effort to mention these sorts of things on YouTube. Because, because you know, there are places where I played tournaments um, and people are completely unaware. And, and a good example actually was, was the Grand Swiss and Isle of Man. And, you know, Isle of Man, is, it's very small, the, the main city of Douglas. I, I don't even know how, how big it is in terms of population size, but I'm guessing it's not more than maybe 10,000 um, could yeah. be wrong on that, of course, mm -hmm. but it, but it's very tiny. Yeah. And I, I must have gotten recognized by like three or four locals randomly, and none of them had a clue the tournament was going on. Literally zero clue yeah. whatsoever. Had oh. no idea the event was going That's on. That's even such people who place. recognize you on the street don't know Correct. there's a tournament in their hometown. Correct. Yes. Um, and that, that has happened in other places as well. But sort of considering how small Isle of Man is, it sort of speaks, I think, to the lack of visibility of the tournament as a whole. So um, I think that, uh, that that organizers and just the chess world as a whole need to really understand that and they need to make a much bigger push, you know, whether it's uh, whether it's themselves putting out tweets or even frankly, the players put, putting things on social media, I think as a whole, everybody needs to try harder is what I would say. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, it feels like there's so much potential now. Uh, do you feel like there has been this like second boom in 2023 where just so many more like college kids, high school kids are getting into it and just like regular working adults that like never played a tournament, never even thought about it, just kind of they just downloaded chess.com app on their phone and now they play. Yeah, so I mean, I think in terms of people playing chess, it's never been more popular. I, I, I think really to me, actually, boom, I think boom is kind of the wrong word to use. So I think boom very specifically refer to the rise on Twitch and YouTube and not chess as a whole. Like, because when, when you think about the boom, I would say chess.com, for example, I think they're doing extremely well. So I don't think they've really seen any kind of downturn in terms of um, in terms of like signups and people playing on the site. I think it's probably close to the all time high, maybe maybe not as high as in January when there was a whole mittens event. But um, as, as a whole, yeah, I think there are a lot of people who are still getting into chess every day. And I think it, chess remains very strong. And also, I think coming sort of from the side of like seeing the whole rise of chess on Twitch and YouTube at the same time as the pandemic, also at the same time as the as the rise of esports, they've sort of gone in very different directions. When you when you look at esports as a whole, the, many of the esports organizations are struggling. In fact, I think a few of them have even just sort of gone bankrupt. Um, and chess, meanwhile, remains very, very strong. So. I, I think as a whole, um, chess, chess is doing very, very well. And I think there, there are more and more people getting into it casually than ever before. And I think that's going to continue for quite a while still. One thing that David was saying before we started that I want to get your take on is that with the boom, obviously you've said chess.com is doing great, right? Some streamers like yourself are doing great. Um, but when I go to like the, the open tournaments that you grew up with, they're the same, same amount of people, same prize fund, like the exact same prize fund. And it seems like, this is why I want to get your take, that the top tournaments are basically the same as they were before as well. <laughs> yeah, so I, I completely agree with you. I think when you look at the boom, I think that where you'll see that is specifically in kids' tournaments, um, those classic events. I think there are many more kids who are playing um, playing those events. I think when you look at sort of whether it's like the amateur level, like expert 2000, maybe I am or up to like 26, 2700 GM, I would agree with you. I don't think anything has fundamentally changed. I think the budgets have remained the same. And I think that's mostly due to organizers, um, 
uh, not really either feeling the need to try and expand or not understanding the ecosystem and the world that we live in today. Um, and I think it is it is sad to see because you're right. If, if you go to like the World Open, which is an event that I played, I don't even know how many times you go to the right. National Open, all, all these different events. Um, it does feel very much like it's the exact same. And I think that's that's definitely disappointing considering that we have seen I would say sort of at the very top end for the very top players it's improved and also at the at the bottom and obviously it's not financial but you see a lot more kids so it feels like everywhere in the middle things have stayed the same but on the on the ends it has completely changed so it, it is sad to see um and I think again the main reason for that is that there is sort of I think very little incentive to really change anything for those organizers like what what are they what are they aiming to achieve exactly i mean are they intending to trying try and turn a massive profit i mean it's, it's hard enough to turn a profit as is so i don't think that's realistic um in terms of trying to put it put that work out to get an extra few hundred players like i mean just flood social media with things i mean it, it's very it's very thankless and i think it's it's a difficult task and I, I think the lack of motivation um sort of the incentives versus like just putting in that hard work is not not really there so it has stayed the same and i think um it, it i don't think that's going to change okay yeah that that's my huge question is <laughs> really like i feel like the boom has like hit some parts but not really affected lots of other parts of the chess economy and um... yeah so i mean i think the for, first and foremost um what it, what i would say is chess very similar to probably any field out there in business or otherwise i, I feel like it's the first there's this thing you know the first mover advantage i think really when the pandemic hit the people who were in it at the time i mean i would just say like myself botez levy and chess bra specifically because we were the four biggest um by far we're sort of in the right place at the right time. And I, and I think that, you know, even some of the people who've come onto the scene since then have actually had quite a bit of success. You have people like Anna Cramling, for example, you have Nemo and others. Um, and I feel like anyone who anyone who saw who, who was there at the time or sort of saw where it was going succeeded. I would say now it's very, very difficult to break. And I think a lot of people want to. Um, but on the other hand, there's this this tricky thing, which is that if you aren't sort of on the inside doing it, there are a lot of little things that go behind that, that happen behind the scenes. So it's not as simple as just boot up your stream, like stream for 10 hours right. every day, get a massive audience. And I think yeah. a lot of people saw what happened. A lot of people sort of want to get in on that, but they also don't really understand all the work and sort of all the groundwork that was laid and laid laid in order for it to um to happen in the first place. So um, I mean, it, it definitely has benefited the content creators. Um, I think it has benefited benefited um, some some chess players who are making courses. I mean, maybe this is a little bit of a hot take, but I actually think that a lot of the players who are in the 2600 range who are doing these chessable courses, for example, are actually giving away their secrets at what I would say is way below a fair fair market value because I think many people get access to these courses and can use them like myself and others. Um, and at the end of the day, they can't really use them. I don't think I don't think it benefits them as much as it potentially could. Specifically, like if if say there was a twenty six hundred, I'll just give a, give a name because I've, I've seen seen his course. But uh, there's this player who represents the U.S. Darius Swierts, and he did a course on the uh, on the Spanish. I think it was either Archangel or Moeller, one of those lines. And um, and first thing. He played it in the U.S. Championship against Lenier Dominguez. He was very lucky to escape with a draw. He forgot his prep. He was completely lost, whatever. Um, but for me, for example, if, if I can get that course, um, I can use it. A lot of people who are lower rated cannot use that course. So there's very, there's very little incentive for them to buy that course because it's not going to be productive for them. But even beyond that, if he were to, say, make these courses and, and not publish them and then give them to someone for the candidates, basically work with a player, he would get much more value out of that course than publishing it on Chessable. And I think a lot of people have done that. And for some of them, it's very profitable. But I think as a whole, it actually um, 
it's benefited the the serious competitors more than it's benefited the uh, published i guess publishers or, or or those gms who have made those courses that's crazy wow because i was thinking in terms of like what's the income of a 26 to 26 75 mm -hmm. uh gm now versus eight to ten years ago and has it changed and the one thing that i thought of was maybe some of them are making a lot of money on chessable courses that was like the one thing i thought of is that could be mm -hmm. like an obvious change or, or advantage yeah i mean i think for some I, again i think some do i think uh much like most parts of the chess comic experience of boom whether it's twitch youtube um or chessable or or even on chess.com for that matter um is that i think there are some of the very top ones do very well but i think as a whole it doesn't really filter down the way that mm -hmm. you would expect it to i mean obviously right. i don't have actual numbers um but i don't believe that it filters down as much as people assume it does so i think they can make some income but i think you know for example i think anish giri i suspect he does quite well but i think for a lot of people if they don't have sort of a social media profile or big visibility they're not they're not doing as well off of it as one would assume and that's also why i think for for the players who are who are in that range it's very difficult because do you want to make those courses do you want to sort of like try and stream do you, do you want to go and go go down these routes because this is really the only way um that chess has changed substantially is that the ways that you can monetize are are purely on social media mm -hmm. yeah we were just talking before the stream about how um whether we've made enough with dojo or if we could have just been like teaching private lessons you know these mm. last like three and a half years and <laughs> made more that way <laughs> but i don't know i feel like there's a ton of potential with with streaming the nice thing about courses is like once you've done one you put it out you know it's up forever and then it can mm -hmm. always go up in popularity later on i feel like these guys they should be doing non-opening courses stuff that's just more it's gonna like last a long time on like general principles and stuff well and i mean I, I can i can give you one one little one little bit of insight one, one little secret then i guess which is you know one, one of the things that makes both levy and myself so successful on youtube is the sheer volume of videos that we've created over the last couple of years and then the number of videos that are very very relevant whether it's like tier lists or just general opening opening principles and, and analysis um, when you have like a massive volume or massive collection like that and it's not purely um some it's something that reaches to the entire audience of chess there are videos of mine that on youtube sometimes do go viral like a year and a half or two years later after they've been mm -hmm. published so um that that is something that's really really important down the road but i think also uh, just from from my my you know my personal story you know obviously I was in the right place at the right time I, I had started streaming very seriously in 2019 um, before the whole pandemic but I think that even for me when I started out doing it um, obviously a lot of it was luck but I also was doing it because I enjoyed it I wasn't doing it to try and make money I, I think anytime you approach something with the attitude that you have to make money. Um, it's sort of it, it detracts and I, I would say for almost all the people who've made it big in streaming or content creation I don't think any of them went into it with this expectation of like making lots and lots of money being hugely successful they did it mostly for fun something because that they did because they enjoyed it and then it became something bigger so I, I do think when it comes to trying to to build a platform on social media you have to do it for reasons that are not purely monetary because it, or, or they're not just monetary reasons it has to be something there has to be something more to it so I do think that a lot of the um one thing that a lot of people also don't realize is that viewers I mean we like to make the joke like everybody's watching is like 10 years old or eight years old or whatever just a bunch of kids no nobody's serious blah 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 um 
But I think that at the end of the day, viewers are actually very smart and they can see when the streamers are being genuine and when they aren't being genuine or like their motivations aren't aren't for the right reasons. Um, and I, I think that that also is very important. A lot of people don't really don't really understand that. Yeah, yeah definitely. You got to enjoy the streaming. Otherwise, yeah, it doesn't it wouldn't work. <laughs> so Jesse and Kostya, you guys have each published courses on Chessable. Um, if you can speak about it freely, like how do you feel about like how much you basically earn from that compared to other ways of earning money as a chess player? Like, do you feel like, like it went well? Did you feel like you got a taste of the chess boom? <laughs> I mean, it's fine. It wasn't, it wasn't huge money or anything. Um, it's also like a real pain. It's a pain to create those courses there. It's a very bureaucratic process. Chessable man, they got all these things that they want you to do. So it was a real uh, struggle to actually get both of those courses published. And I think me and Kosi made a little money, but it wasn't extravagant or anything, you know. I, I would say no. My course has done well. I mean, I, you know, I did a course on Endgame Studies. Yeah. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. You know, I don't think I could have sold that to any top players. Like, hey, do you want some of my Endgame study? You know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but Chessable has been very nice to me. Like they've definitely done their share of like promoting the course. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they've promoted my course more than they've promoted someone who's like lesser well known. So right. a lot of it, I think, has to do with just Chessable's like marketing uh, team choices. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think as as also that's the other thing as we look into the future. You look at like the the talents that are up and coming. Um, if we're trying to increase the reach of chess, we're trying to make it much more commercially viable. It's going to be very important that the junior juniors, the, the kids who are up and coming these days, learn how to use social media. They do sort of build a brand in a sense for themselves. It doesn't have to be like streaming completely, but even like Anish, for example, on, on Twitter, like he is putting out a lot of tweets. He's trying, he's trying to raise his profile quite a bit. And I think for the juniors, um, as, as we go forward, that is going to be very, very important if we hope for sort of this chess boom. Um, to continue to some degree, because otherwise I have a feeling that once we get past the days of myself and Magnus and others, there's a very good chance that chess could essentially go back to where it was before, where the interest dries up simply because the top players are not household names and they're not very well known. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, no, the fans, I think, love that the top players started uh, like tweeting a lot. Um, like you obviously a niche Magnus, I like Fabi, he kind of started tweeting like last couple of years, like more recently. I think the fans like really enjoyed that. So yeah, I think that's absolutely huge for, for keeping the interest. Yeah. Seeing uh, players in the confessionals and stuff. Like when I was younger, I had to take a plane to wake on Zay to see a top player for the first time. Like I'd never, you know, heard a top player talk about chess or seen them sit at a board and think and stuff, you know, I mean, now we've got top players in the U S but back then, you know, like in terms of mm -hmm. world elite and now you could be sitting at home and you can like hear what Hikaru was thinking during his game yeah, and after the game and, and everything. And that applies for, you know, several other of the top players too. So. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a it's a very special time that we live in. I mean, I mean, for for myself, the way that I generally look at things is that I think, um, I mean, maybe some people like chess.com won't be thrilled with me saying this, but I feel like we, we reached a peak in terms of like the, the pure like interest in chess. But I think the most important thing, at least from my perspective, is maintaining it where it's at and looking at all the different things that have happened over the last few years and trying to get people to do these things down the road so that, you know, when when the days of myself, when the days of Magnus are gone, that it does continue as is. Um, and yeah, it, it's very special for people to be able to see that. I think I think also, um, you know, one thing that I learned, I think in 2019, it's, it's most 
mostly by accident, of course, is that when I started streaming initially, of course, I was a pro chess player, very, very serious. I mean, definitely too serious, I would say, looking back on it now. And I mean, there's this sort of this this thing, and, and you will see it amongst a lot of the top players still, where they tend to be very serious as you keep it, you play it very, very close to the vest. So what I mean by that is you don't really you, you don't really show your personality much. You definitely don't talk about uh, anything, anything that was really important from a game. And I mean, I've, I've given this example many times, but the most uh, the most obvious example is Levon Aronian, the Armenian-American grandmaster. And if you watch his interviews very closely and you're say 2650 or above, and, and you look at you look at his history of the games and you, know, you look at his comments and you match them up, there are many times where he'll say something that is just simply not true. He'll say like, oh, I looked at this, I forgot this line, a lot of these sorts of things, and it's simply not true. Um, but you know, when I started streaming in 2019, what I realized is that it's much more important to sort of open up. It's much more important to try and share that knowledge because really, I mean, if you think about it, yes, I'm, I am I was a top player. I have a career, maybe five, 10 more years, if that. Um, but what, what about beyond that? those secrets or, you know, my knowledge, whatever I, I may have, that's not really going to be important to me. It's not going to serve any use for me down the road. And so I think, I think that's sort of, it taught me when I was started streaming in 2019, that you need to sort of open up, you need to share more of these insights. You need to be who you are. And, and when you do that, um, I think a lot of people can get can become very interested in chess in a different way than just watching the generic, boring interview um, after a game. Well, Carl, I think one of the things that's fascinating to me about you is like you have put yourself out there, you know, mm -hmm. hours and hours of, you know, of opening yourself up, as you said. But at the same time, like I'm sure that the you're you're an enigma to your fans, myself included. And there's like at least three things, you know, like when you watch a good movie and you're kind of like, well, what's going on with this character? You know, what's driving this character? How is this going? And you have, for just speaking for myself as a fan, but I'm sure other people feel this way. There's, you have at least three enigmas that are like driving and I'm like, oh my God, what's the plot point? What's going on with this guy? <laughs> and um, so I want to ask you about a couple of those, but mm -hmm. I just want to say that up front because I think that is some of the thing that's interesting to watch about you because you're open, but at the same time, there's some complexities about who you are that are like, mm -hmm. oh, this is really interesting. Like, what's going on with this guy? You know? But let me let me ask you the one that I'm sure is on everyone's mind. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because this is like an obvious discrepancy. Like you were watching a movie of yourself, this would be the question you'd be asking. <laughs> it would be this. Um, Hikaru is about to play the biggest tournament of his life. And He's talking to these three chumps. <laughs> He's talking to these three chumps instead of like, you know, doing whatever hard chess work it might be. Um, and I'm sure everyone's got that question on their mind because this big tournament's coming up, right? And not only us uh -huh. three chumps, but you're going to be streaming, opening yourself up, maybe even showing some of your opening prep. And so can we talk about that a little bit? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, I think for me that this goes really, this goes back to 2016, if we're going to talk about the candidates specifically. And in 20, in 2015, I played, I played the FIDE Grand Prix. I qualified for the candidates tournament. And in, in 2016, I actually sort of went the quote unquote traditional route. And I mean, I, I would say throughout my career, I've been very non-traditional in many ways, but for that event, I was very traditional. Um, I think the event was held in March of 2016. And I think it was in December, January, I basically took one month. I was in Italy. I did, did a very long training camp with Peter Lecco, as well as my longtime second, Chris Littlejohn. Um, and we, we'd spent one month there. I think I was back in Florida prepping nonstop, reviewing lines nonstop, pretty much straight up until the tournament. And 
Um, in the tournament itself, what happened is, first of all, I sort of reviewed too much. I confused all my lines. I lost some games very early on, uh, specifically the game against uh, Sergei Karyakin in the Queens Indian defense where I had the black pieces. I confused the move order, lost that game very poorly. And so when, when I when I, when I I lost that game, lost the other games, I actually was having a very bad event. But by the end, I won two games, I think against Topolov and Anand. Had a decent score. Of course, I didn't. I, it wasn't anywhere near good enough to uh, qualify for the match, but I had a decent score. So... When, when I played when I played the cancer, the main lesson that I learned from that event was essentially that when you, you take the event too seriously and you prepare nonstop, you have all these very, very bad thoughts. And this actually goes back to the chess economy. But, you know, a lot a lot of my thoughts and I, I think this is um, it's, it's, it's not a good thing for sure when you think like this. But a lot of my thoughts around the time were sort of like, OK, I'm playing the candidates. If I win this tournament, OK, first of all, I'm going to get a bunch of money for win the, winning the tournament. But if I get to that match, I'm going to get like a million dollars like that's going to yeah. set me up, you know, somewhat. Yeah. I don't want to say for the rest of my life, but it's going to set me up. I'm going to be in a very good position. I will I will have made more money from that event than I would have made potentially from my entire career, as much as I would have made over essentially like a decade of playing the game. So I had a lot of these thoughts in my head. I over prepped. I did all these things and it simply was way too much for me. So um, if we fast forward to the, the 2022 candidates, which I played in Spain, I actually sort of went the exact opposite direction. I did a lot less lot less preparation and training um i mean I, I don't want to say how much i did but it was not every day it was not for months on end and um and so i i, I sort of I put in a lot of work but i felt like i used my time in a much more uh in a much better way than i had in 2016. it wasn't simply brute forcing spending every day every waking moment thinking about chess thinking about the camps all these other things um and so that that decision in 2022 to approach the tournament the way that I did was 100% informed by the 2016 candidates. And the other big takeaway for, for me for me from the 2016 candidates is that essentially, I don't want to say it's it's all luck, but a lot of the tournament is luck in terms of who you play in what round, who gets nervous, who makes a blunder, all these other things. And I felt very much that it was completely out of my control. I didn't feel like, I mean, if I had won every game, like, like what Nepo did actually last year, then yeah, sure, it, you, you can just coast to victory. But as a whole, it felt to me like a lot of that is just it's just a crapshoot. It's just luck. Whatever happens, it's a lottery. Um, and, and so that that informed my decisions in 2022. So now if we look at 2023, um, or actually let me back backtrack for one second. Um, you know, going into 2022, probably going to 2022 candidates, my biggest regret in my entire chess career, without a doubt, was my performance in 2016 in the candidates. And the reason is because I felt that there were games I lost out of the opening. I did everything wrong. I felt too much pressure. I didn't play anywhere near the level that I was capable of. Now, does that mean that I would have like qualified, played a match, whatever? No, it doesn't. But I didn't feel that I had played at a level that was satisfactory. So in 2022, I, I think I repaired all that damage where I even had a chance potentially to finish second if I had not lost a ding in the last round. And, and I had a good event. And to me, that sort of proved that no matter what, I had the ability to where I could win the tournament, where I could play a match. And that really was good enough for me. And so as we go into 2023, um, I, I feel basically that it's a free roll for me where it doesn't matter. I can do well, I can do badly. Doesn't matter. I already I already sort of erased the one one big regret or the one sort of what if doubt, doubt, um, doubtful questions that I had in my mind. Um, so. I, I am still going to prepare quite seriously for the tournament, but it doesn't necessarily change anything for me. And also the reason that I say that is because first of all, Magnus Carlson is not the world champion, but secondarily from a financial standpoint, I do much better from creating content than I do from playing chess. Um, and, you know, we, we can debate whether that's, I mean, as many people think that that's, that's a great pity that that's the case. Um, 
as opposed to it being a good thing, but that is simply the, you know, the cold, hard reality or the truth about the situation. So I'm going into it very much uh, from the perspective of I'll do my preparation, probably quite similar to what I did um, in 2022. And I, I've said this on my stream before, but it's what November. I'm not even thinking about the candidates right now. I'll start thinking about the candidates uh -huh. in probably January. I, I mean, I really have not thought about it at, at, at all whatsoever. Um, so it's it for me it's more about um just doing doing work a certain way a way that i think is much different from the past i, I would also say even my successes in the grand swiss or elsewhere i mean i'm still spending a lot of time preparing but it is not the you know 10 hours maybe not 10 but more like six seven eight hours every day that it used to be like i, I use my time much more efficiently um and maybe that also is, is a byproduct of streaming frankly because with streaming, when I'm streaming seven, eight hours every day, I do have to figure out uh, how to budget my time. Where, where what am I going to do with those few hours in the day when I'm not actually working? Um, so I, I think for me, it's mostly just figuring out how to use the time. And, and I know for a lot of people, it's like it's unconscionable that that I can possibly like look at the candidates and be so blase. It's like, oh, it's just a tournament. Who cares? Mm -hmm. Whatever. Um, but I think for me, I, I've just found sort of the happy in between where, of course, I want to do well. I want to be competitive. But it doesn't ultimately change anything for me. And I, I think, you know, if I could have had this mindset maybe like 10 years ago, it would have been very interesting to see if I could have competed with Magnus. Alas, we'll never know. But still, I, I think I'm, I'm in a pretty good place. So here's, well, there's an obvious follow up that is another, like, what every chess fan I'm sure is wondering is <clears throat> you've done great in the last year. I mean, stunning. And it's surprising it, in two levels, two obvious levels, right? One, because everyone can see you streaming you're not working like people imagine you know a world championship candidates might be working so that's number one but then number two normally like people players peak around 28 you know and you're around 35 so it's like this very surprising thing and one thing um you know we were talking about this agar tweet that if you take just the last year's results you're number one number one mm -hmm. in the world. i mean stunning right and I remember back in the day, just your struggle to make it into, you know, the top 20 and then top 10. That was a huge struggle for you. I remember, I remember <laughs> congratulating you, like it must have been St. Louis 2011 or right around there. And it was like, oh my God, Hikaru really made it, you know, right around that point. And that was such a struggle. And whereas this feels like, oh, this is easy. <laughs> this is like this easy walk, you know? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, there, there, there are a couple of components to that. First of all, I, I think without any pressure, it's easier to perform better. And I, I don't think this is just, uh, this just applies to chess. I think if you're at the top of any field, it's very important for whatever you're doing for it to feel fresh, for to, to be enjoying it. And I think that's, that, that's one thing that is not talked about at all, which is that almost all the top chess players are playing too much. Um, and that, that is, of course, is a byproduct of the pandemic with all these online events now, in addition to all the over the board events. Um, but I do feel that most of the top players are playing too many games. They're just like Wesley. So is a perfect example. I think he's probably played uh, one or two events every single month of this year. And unfortunately for Wesley, it's showing, I think, in his results in recent times, he looks bored. The games are not exciting. He's making blunders left and right. It feels like at least in the rapid and blitz events that I just saw in mm -hmm. St. Louis. Um, and I think a lot of players are doing this. And for that reason, with it not being fresh, I don't think they're playing up to their true potential. Um, and, and I understand it because at the end of the day, the players are trying to make a living. We're in this time where for the top players with all the chess champions tours events, title Tuesday, and, and, and I think also like speech chess championship, et cetera, it goes on combined with all the over the board events. There are more events now for the top players than there ever have been probably in the entire history of chess. Um, 
So for the top players, I think they view it as like, well, we have this great opportunity to make more money than we've ever made before. Um, but at the same time, you're also sacrificing the quality. And, and I could give another example, which is like Gukesh from India. Very, very strong player. He's 27.50, I feel like, just a month ago. Has two bad tournaments in Doha and the Grand Swiss. And just like that, he's like, he's just an average 27.10 out of nowhere. He went from basically being on the cusp of top 10, top 5, to suddenly being like number 30 in the world out, out of the blue. Um, so I think that's the first thing. I think they're playing too much. So they're not enjoying chess that much. Um, whereas I actually am playing a lot less. And I think when you play less um, and you're playing, when you're playing less and there's no pressure, it's very freeing for me. I enjoy it because it, at least in my mindset, when I go into a tournament these days, I'm just playing to be competitive and have fun. I, I have no other thoughts whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So like when I sit down at the board and I play like the game against like Fabi or Cheparinov in those last couple of rounds, I'm looking as like, oh man, these are the last couple of games of chess I'm playing before I have to go back to my regular job. So my mindset is that it's for me, it's simply a vacation or it's just a break from what I do every single day. And, and I know for a lot of people, it's, that's going to sound completely insane, um, but that's really how I do view it. So like when I get to the end of the turn, I'm looking at it's like, you know, I'm playing these games I'm like, wow, like these are these are like the last hours I got to enjoy them before I have to go home and, and get back to streaming. Um, yeah. So so for me, I think it's a combination of playing a lot less, being a lot fresher, really just enjoying the game as well. I mean, of course, I'm still studying, but then I think the other thing is that everybody's playing too many events. They're, they're playing way too many tournaments. And so I think the quality of, of top-level chess at the moment is definitely dipping quite a bit. And I also feel like when I look at some of the Magnus games, some of the mistakes he makes, like yesterday in his game against Bier uh, from Denmark, when he played this Rook B2 move, that felt like a move that I, I would play that in title Tuesday. Like I, it's just a quick blitz move, play this move. And then of course, Bier finds this, this awesome Knight F5 move and suddenly Magnus is in a lot of trouble. And I think there, there, that that's the thing is like even Magnus for that matter, with all the online events, just playing mm -hmm. so much chess in general, it's starting to add up. And I, I think, um, so I think it's a combination of just like feeling very free playing chess and, and enjoying it unlike before i mean honestly i said this during the grand swiss and um i, I don't know if you guys caught it but there was there was uh, an interview i think after the final round when i was in the studio with david howell and yvonne kahuska and um i actually asked david a question i, I said like david you're probably enjoying chess a lot more now than you did before the pandemic because david mm -hmm. howell has been very successful right. as a commentator and he, he essentially was like yeah i mean I, I enjoy it and that's sort of the thing is that with, with people who've sort of found these other avenues to make money, other ways to do things, um, there isn't the same pressure level. And so you can actually enjoy the chess. Whereas like for myself or David Howell, I'm pretty sure that you go back five years, like we're playing chess, we're trying to make a living. But at the end of the day, like we're not thrilled by playing chess. We're, we're, it's kind of like you're doing this, like, yeah, we're wasting our lives playing chess. It's a very negative mindset, very negative attitude. And that does that definitely doesn't help with performance. Whereas now, pretty much everything related to chess, I'm just very positive because I, I know that I'm going to be going back to streaming and uh, mm -hmm. and doing that. So I, I think just being positive, I mean, sort of I would also say figuring out how to study a little bit better than I did in the past, like using the time, not not spending 10 hours of study. If you, if you study for three, four hours, but you're able to like study things that matter, that's much more important than just the sheer amount of time that you spend on the game. So um, it's a combination of many factors, but I think the main thing is just like the positivity, feeling very free playing chess, and also that everybody else is playing way too many tournaments, way, way, yeah. way too many. You know, and what's so interesting for me to hear that, Icaro, is like, you know, let's, if I dial it back to like 2002, three, four, so 2004, then was you, I feel like your coming out moment where we played that U.S. championship, San Diego, right? Mm -hmm. And um, what every GM was just in consternation about flabbergasted was you were spending all your time playing Blitz online. Mm -hmm. And they were like, how come this kid isn't doing like the Russian school or whatever? And while you were talking just then, I was thinking to myself, 
Hikaru as a kid maybe was just playing all that blitz because there was so much pressure on him from everywhere to be a success, right? That when you, um, when you like were in that zone, it was so much easier just to do this adrenaline rush of blitz where you just, it's like, you're, you don't even have to think about anything. It's a zone that you can fall into for hours and hours and hours where you then you don't feel that pressure. Right. I mean, that, that is part of it. I, you know, one funny thing about that though, is that nowadays I would argue that's the norm. I mean, like when I, when I, when I go online, like just yesterday I was playing against, there's this like 12 year old Turkish kid who's like 2,500. He's going to be a GM very soon. There's mm -hmm. also an Iranian kid who's like 13. That's actually almost the norm now. That's how a lot of the kids now improve. Right. It's, I, I would, I would yeah. argue that's more important than any other method at this point. So maybe I was actually the first person who figured it out to some degree. Definitely. There's a lot of pressure. I mean, it's a, it's a different kind of pressure, obviously, um, when you're a kid, because certainly as, as a kid, the pressure is just like trying to improve, feeling like you've got to be successful one way or another. I, I think as a young adult, uh, it was, the pressure was completely different. It's more from a financial perspective of, of really. And again, I mean, this probably sounds silly because I, I think, you know, nobody really has a secure job in life per se. Um, but I think for me, a lot of the pressure I felt um, was sort of making sure that I maintained my level, making sure that I was I was going to be okay. Because year after year, if you don't maintain your rating, like let's just say you, you go below 2,700, uh, your your earnings basically dry up completely. You're going to lose like 75% of your earnings if you're if you fall outside the top 20 or top 25. Um, and so for me, that was like a constant pressure that was always sort of nagging, eating away at me th throughout my career. I mean, maybe not at the very start, because I think when you break through for the first year or two, you're, it's like it's very cool. You get to travel a lot, play top level tournaments, get paid good amounts of money. Um, but once you get past that, and then secondly, once you realize there's this, this annoying player who happens to be better than everyone else and becoming world champion is pretty unlikely. I feel like the mindset just changes completely. Um, but but certainly, yeah, as, as a kid, as a kid, I played a lot of blitz. That's how I improved. Um, I, I was very lucky. I got to play against a lot of good players like Gata, Gata, Rajabov, many others online at the time. Um, and yeah, to some degree, I would say it was a bit—it was a bit of an escape from from pressure. But it was also, frankly, I just loved playing. I just loved playing chess. It didn't matter what it was. I just loved playing, and I felt like the experience mattered. And as I said, I mean, I, I did things differently then. I mean, I think I've done a lot of things differently throughout my life. But the funny thing is now that is. That that is almost the, that that is pretty much the norm. I mean, that is how yeah. kids improve. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. go online, they play against me in Blitz, and they they get this invaluable experience. Um, you know, another one is like there's this guy V Pranav or Buddy Pranav from India. Another guy who, when he was like 12, I was playing. He was already getting good, but now he's like 2600. He's like 16, and it's just it's amazing to see. Yeah, actually, uh, Hikaru, did you catch our podcast where we ranked the uh, the top juniors um, I did in the not. world? Oh, okay, that's uh, or no, I know. I think I think I I think I watched them, but I didn't catch that segment actually, where where you rank them. Um, I, I mean, I could them. obviously I could obviously rank them too if you want me to. Yeah, yeah, we were all curious, like who would be your your top. I guess we all drafted, but who would be mm -hmm. like your top five five top juniors? Five. If you okay, had to, to pick. So right now, I would I would say head and shoulders above everybody else would be Pragnananta, and and there there really are, are, are two reasons for that. Um, and one one of them is is related to the World Cup. Um, so in the World Cup, when Prague went very deep, um, he he basically showed that he has really really good nerves. And again, I can't really for someone who's never played in the cans or, or hasn't looked at the games very closely or is of a very high level is, is something hard to understand but the canada's tournament one thing that i didn't mention earlier is that i think if you look at the canada's tournament versus almost any other top level tournament the performance of the players is significantly worse i think the players play at like 2700 or lower on average i i, I know there are stats on this um 
And so what does that say? That basically says the players, essentially what happened to me in 2016, is the players get too nervous. They're so nervous about this golden ticket to, to make a lot of money, play for the world championship, the ultimate title. Um, and they, they all sort of collapse under the pressure. So I would say Prague, simply based on the fact that in the World Cup when the stakes were very high, the Canada's qualification was close. He kept his nerves together. On top of that, he was playing against the best players in the world, players like myself, Fabiano, and Magnus. Um, so I would easily rank him number one right now just, just based off of uh, his composure. Um, and obviously, rating-wise, I think he's up there. I guess Ali Reza, is he technically? I, I don't really think of Ali Reza as a junior. Um, I think he's still he's still under 21. Yeah, he still counts. Yeah, he was on our on our draft okay well well then okay ollie reza has to be number one just because his peak is 2800 prague is number two um and after that i would say right now um just just looking at the performances um and the consistency i probably would say kamer is number three for me um i think i think vincent has shown great performances uh, pretty much everywhere this year he played very well in the world cup other than the one one hiccup against magnus that second game he's playing pretty well in the european team championship i i don't think he was doing great in isle of man but i think he was up there near the top um so i i would say i would say he has to be number three and then i think it's sort of the rest after that um there, there are many others who are who are very good um like noterbeck for example but noterbeck i think got to 2740 took a step back um, so I, I, I would say there's the top three. Gukesh is up there, of course, as someone in chat mentioned. Um, uh, but I, I would say the top three are very clear. And after that, I think it becomes sort of you can pick pick anybody is what I would say. I don't think there's any big difference between the rest. But you feel like you can discern with pretty good confidence between like Kamer and Gukesh or something like that. Like you can really see the difference at your level. I mean, I think what I would say is that when I, when I, when I look at the games, I feel like uh, for for Vincent, he's playing very well against players of all the rating ranges. So, like for example, when he play when he plays against the Magnus of the world, the twenty the high 2700s, uh, not twenty seven hundred, sorry, like twenty seven fifty plus. Um, I feel like he's able to maintain his own, but I also feel like when he plays against like the twenty six hundred, twenty six fifty range, he's also crushing them as well. So I feel like he's playing very well against all the rating ranges. I feel like with Gukesh, obviously he hasn't played as many tournaments, but it felt like in Norwich has he struggled a lot against the absolute best, where he's an absolute he's an absolute machine. He just mows down like the twenty six hundred players um you know, every day. It seems like other than the last two tournaments, but it, it felt like he's playing very well against against that band of players, but not against the absolute top. So that's what I would say for the top three. I mean, I can obviously look. Um, I see like Arjun Arjun's number four, Noterbeck is number five, Gukesh is number six. I, I actually think if I, if I look at it, I think. Cinderov is a, a player who's very sort of underrated right now. Someone who has a lot of potential. He's only 17 years old um, from Uzbekistan. So he he's in, he's in the running as well, I would say, but really for me, I think those, those top three are, are, are undisputed. And then we'll see, we'll see who else joins them. I don't know, but Kostya and Jesse, like, I feel like when we were picking, I was mostly just guessing. I don't know if you guys felt like really <laughs> confident about some of the picks, but when I look at like, one 18 year old rated 27 10 and another rated 27 15 and like one week one of them gains 20 points and the next week the other one does when we were drafting i basically felt like i'm like i'm guessing yeah it does feel random actually like you know a couple of years ago nepo wasn't like a top player in the world he was like 27 20 for a little while and then all of a sudden he like shot up to basically 2800 which was kind of surprising like he and andre can basically were like right around the same Andrekin has kind of like stayed at that level and Nepo like went up to 2800. It's hard to say why exactly, um, you know, one player like goes how up, anyone before doesn't. that could have predicted that this is somebody who will play for the world championship. Yeah, 
that, yeah, that, that is true. But on the other hand, I, I would say that like one of the things, especially since I play against all these guys, is sort of you look at how they play against the very top players. And I, I think that gives you a good sense of what their potential is. You know, like you look at Ali Reza, for example, before before he had completely broken through, like even though it was mostly online, he was playing as 2600s. Um, uh, over the board, he was able to keep. He was able to ma- match up against myself and Magnus pretty evenly online. I think that's sort of a very good sign. Nepo also. Uh, the reason I brought that up is because I think Nepo had a very very good score against Magnus. He always he he was always drawing or beating Magnus up until. I mean, I don't want to say like last five, six years, but he, he had a very good score and he always gave Magnus problems. And I think that's a very good barometer is when you see how someone is doing against the absolute top players, even if it's only a handful of games. And so like when I look at players like Cinderov, for example, I played him in, I played him in the uh, Qatar Masters in Doha and he was playing very, very good chess, a little bit too tactical perhaps, but very, very good chess against me. He beat Ali Reza in the World Cup a few years ago. And so that's why I actually brought him up specifically. And, and also like Vincent as well, same thing. Like he's played against the best players in the world and he's definitely held his own and i think that's a very good barometer of what the potential peak can be oh that's interesting that makes a lot of sense yeah we could redo the draft now that we know how to draft (laughs) (laughs) um we wanted to talk a little bit about the um you know your thoughts on the future of chess whether it's you think it's going to move more in like the rapid and blitz direction and if that's something like you would actually want to see if like you'd prefer to just play online all the time or if you still like you know you still want to be playing classical well into the future yeah so 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 i guess we'll get to the first hot take and i mean i've said this i've said this before on my stream but I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you know, I've, I've spent so, so many hours playing many online tournaments over the last three years. Uh, you know, it started with the Mag, I think it was called the Magnus Carlsen Invitational and the Magnus Carlsen Tour with during the pandemic in 2020. Uh, but, you know, I played so, so many rapid events online. I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older or, or what it might be, but I actually thoroughly unenjoyed the last couple of chess champions tour events that I played online. I, I, I would say that I'm, I'm pretty much over online rapid chess. I just, I just don't enjoy it at all. I don't. I don't, I don't, um, I don't, I don't have a good time. It's, it's not fun for me. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, like I, I really don't want to see more online rapid terms. I'm not even sure if I really would even play in them, frankly, because for me, it's just, it, it's become, it's just, it's not something that I want to do. And, and like I said, it's not even, not even necessarily results specific. It's more that I think I've just played too many of these events and the, the notion of sitting in front of a screen and trying to actually do serious calculations for five or six minutes. On, on a given move is just not something uh, that I want to do going forward. So um, as far as online goes, I, I'm pretty skeptical. Now, now there, there, are a couple, there are a couple of ways of looking at this. First thing as far as online chess goes is whether there are sponsors. Now, when, when we go back to 2020, there, there were a lot of sponsors for pretty much everything, chess, esports, et cetera, because the world was, was shut down. There were, there were the lockdowns, major sports weren't, weren't happening. Um, and so there were a lot of ad dollars that were not being spent um, across the board. And so for that reason, many, many traditional companies, they started looking to Twitch, to YouTube, trying to, trying to place their ads and, and get exposure that way. Um, and do sponsorships, um, which is why we, which is why I think initially we did see the rise of the of the tour, the Chess Champions Tour, the Magnus Carlsen Tour, um, during that time period. But but as we go forward, I would say that I think as a whole, if you cannot get the sponsors, you're not going to be seeing more online tournaments. And I, I think that the world that we live in now, uh, with the economy, interest rates going up uh, a lot. 
Um, companies are not spending as much money as they once were. You will probably have noticed if you look at like my streams, Botez, et cetera, that we are doing a lot less sponsored streams now than we were, say, in 2020 or 2021 specifically. Um, so I, I would say that there isn't there isn't the same appetite for um, for these, these sponsorships uh, across the board. But then, and, and then if you don't have the sponsorships, really, the, the economic model doesn't make sense of holding more events. So so as I see it, um, I don't really think we're going to be seeing more tournaments online. I think we'll continue to see a chess champions tour probably online, but I, I don't really see any way that that, that is going to change um, going forward. And also because frankly, I think now with the world being open, sporting events, everything else, I don't think that advertisers are spending their money um, on online the way that they were before. So I, I don't think we're ever going back to that world where you're going to see like a, you're going to see a bunch of new online tournaments happening. I just, I just don't think so. Um, so online, online of course someone in chats is online classical um that that'll never be a thing for very very obvious reasons um uh but i don't i don't think we're gonna see on more online rapid blitz blitz and bullet you never know maybe it's possible but i i think i think we're in a spot where we have the major events i don't think there's there's any real incentive or need to add more events so online i don't think it's changing i think we've we've reached the um we've reached sort of the uh the maximum point of, of tournaments as far as as far as over the board goes, though, um, I would argue you have the same same issue, though, fundamentally, which is that what what is the reason for having more rapid and blitz events as opposed to classical? The the, the first and foremost reason is because for a viewer, it's too long. I mean, no, no, no average Joe can spend six, six hours watching a classical game of chess. It's not feasible. I mean, almost for anybody, it's not it's not realistic. So nobody wants to watch games that are that long. And then, of course, there's a secondary problem, which is that most of those games are going to end in draws anyway. So you have these two big issues with with classical chess um, from a viewership standpoint. But then you could argue, well, if you're looking at the viewership standpoint, what what is what is the need for viewers? Like, what what does that really change? And again, it comes down to the to the, the question of sponsors. And I, I think you know, even though it's over the board, there still are a lot of people who who watch the the events over the board when they're broadcast online. I, I know um, for myself, one thing that changed a lot, or, or not changed, but really surprised me, was in twenty. I think it was. I think I think it was in 2021. The years sort of blend together now. Um, I, I actually got an invite from the FIDE president Arkady Dvorakovic to play in the FIDE Grand Prix. And up to that point, I, I mean, everything had been online. I, I think Chess.com even put out a tweet when I won that first event that I hadn't played chess or over the board chess in 836 days. Um, <laughs> and so, like up to then, like the whole notion of like uh, of like playing chess and like having a having a broadcast even was not really I mean, it, it wasn't something I had thought about. But then when I played the tournament, um, of course, I did well, which helped. Um, but there were a lot of people who actually were very interested in that, it, it, which to me was it was very strange. Of course, I, I've spent my whole life playing chess. Like, what's the big deal? Like online or the board? I mean, it, it shouldn't make a big difference. But I think because so many people who got into chess during the pandemic had only seen um, people streaming chess online. It was like this whole weird new thing, this fascination that they're playing over the board chess as well, because you've only seen it's like clicking with our, with our mice um, in, in blitz games online. And and so there there is a big appetite. There are a lot of people who do watch the broadcasts um, of uh, of the events. And so if you can show, let's just say, a certain number of concurrent viewers on a, on a, on a broadcast of a chess tournament, there's a very good chance that you'll be able to get sponsorship out of that, or at least that's the hope. Now, in the modern world is a little bit different, of course, um, with the economy. But at least if you go back to like 2021 or 2022, that was sort of the the thought process. Um, so essentially, if you're able to get a certain amount of viewers and you can get sponsors, that's very good for chess as a whole. It's good for say. 
let's just say chess.com let's say they're they're running an event or feeder or whomever it might be because they're going to make they're probably going to be able to turn a profit um the company gets exposure and then the viewers are very happy and last but not least the players are also getting paid more like it's it's the more money there is in chess the better off it is for the professionals who who i mean some people say they earn too much some people say they don't earn enough but either way they're making more money and in any field that's always a good thing when the the top competitors or the top professionals are are making a better living um so so that's the argument for it but again in the current world that we live in where sponsorships are, are a lot harder to come by um, I don't I don't necessarily think that we're trending in that direction. I mean, I know Magus Carlson has been very outspoken on this topic um, about wanting more blitz, more rapid. Uh, it seems like, frankly, things are going the opposite direction, I would argue, where we have more, let's just say, classical tournaments or fast classical, whatever you want to call it, happening um, as opposed to more rapid and blitz tournaments. And I think that's probably mostly due to the fact that um, that a lot of people do enjoy like the serious chess fans do enjoy the slower games with less mistakes but then also a lack of sponsorship so i don't think i don't think we're moving in that direction necessarily i think if, if there's more money coming into the game for rapid and blitz then then we could move that direction but for right now i think i think where we're at is where it's going to stay with mostly classical tournaments um we might have like faster classical like you're already seeing um where the games are 90 plus 30 90 minutes with 30 second increment for move one and then just a second control of 30 minutes a lot of tournaments in the past games could go like five six seven hours now the games get sped up quite a bit i do think there's a world where the games could become even quicker to where it's like 60 minutes for the entire game with 30 seconds for move one and then a sun death control of 30 minutes after move 40. um so i think there's a world where we can end up with even even faster classical chess but i think the notion of moving towards like rapid is just not i i, I don't think it's going to happen yeah do you have do you have a sense if um professionals uh let's say a little bit below your level but you know professional players let's say 2650 to low mm -hmm. 2700s do you think that they're making more money from otb chess than they are from like title tuesdays and and global chess championships and you know speed chess championships what all, all these sort of suite of uh of other events yeah, so I mean, I I think I mean there there are a handful of people who who've done very well online. I mean, I think people like Jospin or David Pravin or Dimitri Andrake. I mean, the the usual Title Tuesday suspects um, who have done um, who who have who have done quite well. Um, but I, I would say that in general, I think most people are probably still making most of their money um, the same way they were before the pandemic, which mm -hmm. is from over the board tournaments, whether it might be. Um, whether it's uh, league games, playing playing the European leagues, whether it's playing the opens, uh, I think I think for most people it has not changed. Is what is what I would say. I, I think it's 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 remained mostly the same. But I do think events like the global global chess league, actually, I will point that out, are very very good because that is, that is a team event. So you're seeing player even players who are like twenty five hundred who are playing as part of a competitive team and they they are getting paid quite well from what I've heard, which which is definitely a good thing. Mm -hmm. Cool. Um, Hey, Carl, don't want to keep you for, for too long. Just curious, uh, do you have other events coming up that you've, uh, you're planning on, on uh, doing? Yeah, so, I mean, it's, 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 as I said, like, before about, like, I have certain criterias um, for tournaments. 2024, of course, is an off year in terms of qualifying for the candidates. I mean, if, if I win the candidates and I, I make a world championship match, obviously everything is subject to change. But uh, if, if I don't, then um, the, the most likely I'll be playing, oh, I'm playing the candidates in April, I'll be playing Norway chess uh, at the end of May. Those are those are the two big events. After that, I I don't really have anything planned, and mainly again, it's because 
there are no tournaments that are going to be qualifying for the next cycle um for the canada's tournament and just I, I sort of feel like I want a little bit of a break. Somehow this year, I felt like I played too much chess. I know my results are very good, but I felt like I played more chess than I would have liked to have played overall. So um, as of right now, I just have two tournaments planned, and um, that's that, that's it for right now. Well, any like um, special goals or long-term ideas for like your, your stream and your content? Um, I mean, I don't have uh, specific specific ideas. I mean, mostly I, I continue to do do what I do. I'd love to put together an event down the road. Um, again, one of the things that has really, really sort of, I think, changed the landscape is the way the economy has shifted, the sort of the downfall in a sense of esports as well. Um, you know, if, if I go back to like 2021 or even 2022, there were some there were some very big um, events I was trying to put together. Um, there was like the Cathlon event that I was doing in, in conjunction with Misfits. Uh, there was Pog Champs, of course, which was which was which was great. Um, so you know, I, I'd like to do something more in the vein of that. On the on the other hand, um, I'm also intending to start working on a book pretty soon. Um, uh, not not a chess specific book, a book sort of about my life, about lessons, all all these lot a lot of stuff similar to what we talked about today. Um, so I, I am starting to work on that as well, but that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, I, I think again, at the end of the day, like I, I really do enjoy being in the position I'm in right now, um, streaming quite a bit, creating the content, um, covering games, all these different things. So I'm, I'm pretty, pretty, uh, pretty good right now. Also, I saw someone in chat wrote something that said, is he still coming to Morocco actually? Um, and I did want to clarify clear this up because I, I know jesse at uh he's like why why isn't he car playing the u.s championship he's got to go for another title um <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh but, but but actually i mean there there are a couple things the first first reason um is, is i did have a scheduling conflict i was going to be in morocco uh, at the same time and then um there shortly before they were they were making the final final planning for the for the event there was a big earthquake that happened there everything got thrown into disarray and the event got canceled and um and we, we, we didn't talk about this um, either, but but one good thing, um, I can, you can look at it as good or bad, depending. Like, if you're me, it's bad. For a lot of pros, I would say it's good. Um, but for a lot of tournaments now, the dates are being set really far out in advance. So I believe, like, for example, at chess.com, I think they're going to be releasing their entire 2024 calendar of events pretty soon, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, like, the U.S. Championship uh, the, and the Grand Chester, they actually sent out the invitations about three and a half to four months before the event be, before the events begin. So with the U.S. Championship, the contracts, I believe, were sent out in, I think it was early July um, for an event in late October. I think it was late October, maybe it was start, but October, um, yeah. yeah, it was like October 4th, I think. So it was it was it was early July when the contract was sent out. And um, with the contract being sent out, obviously, I declined it. And. You know, I, I suppose there's some world where when the when the Morocco uh, filming event got canceled, I could have perhaps asked asked for a spot or, you know, someone could have could have left the event. I mean, it's, it's not unprecedented because I think in Bill, I think it was Bill some years back, Magnus was not playing the event and somehow he was playing like 20, 2010, maybe or 2011 ages ago at any rate. Um, so it's not unprecedented, but. But certainly, it didn't feel right to me to try and do that, and and also with the uh, with the Qatar Masters being possible to play as well, um, it just it just didn't make a whole lot of sense. That was the first reason. The second thing is that, like at this point, you know, I was going to play the U.S. Championships. I mean, other than other than the money, what what am I really playing for? Sure, you could say it's prestigious because it's a very strong. I mean, it's stronger than most of the U.S. Championships that I won in the past for sure. Um, but like, I'm obviously never going to get to what's it, eight titles. I mean, it's, that's just not realistic um, at this point. I mean, maybe I could win one or two more. But if I'm not going to get to eight, and it's just another another chance, and then, then what's the use? But you know, me if 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 I want to throw a bit bit of a uh, bit of shade here for a second, I mean, I'll, I'll blame Gary because because there there was a U.S. Championship 
I think there was one or two of the U.S. championships that I that I would have played in the past, um, but but Gary didn't let me play in them. Um, and if I had like one or two more U.S. championships, I, I think there was actually a pretty good chance that, that I would that, that that I would play uh, and try to get to eight. So I think if I was already at six, I'd, I'd have a shot. But being at five, I, I think it's just it's not realistic um, to to even shoot for eight. It's just, it's, the field is too strong. Even Fabi winning two years in a row is. Is, a, is an amazing performance um but without that it's just like what, what's other than other than the financial end of it what's what's the point and um and it, it, it is a lot of work too i mean i think a lot of people um don't 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 realize just how hard it is to play these long games of chess in the grand swiss or otherwise and then do these recaps i mean it's very very difficult it takes a lot of energy and uh by the end of the tournament i'm i'm generally just dead completely dead because when, when you play these long games normally what you do is you play the long game go eat some dinner, probably relax for 30 minutes and go start studying again and having to do the recaps and, and then even better having to do the recaps in one take um, where I can't just like restart them makes it makes it even even more difficult. But um, it's just a lot of work. And so for me, the, the, the risk reward isn't there. And um, that, that's that's the main reason that I that I don't wait. Why, play. why can't you edit the recap videos? You can't just send them to someone and just say, hey, I messed up at five minutes, edit this out or well, okay, you, you want another little, well, again, uh, another little YouTube trick that I'll tell you guys about, which is generally the, um, uh, because of where I'm at, there are other channels that will cover my games uh, in their recaps. Of course, there are two very specific ones. I don't need the na need to name them. Everyone knows what they are. Um, and so at the end of the day, if you're not sort of the first first out or you're not at the same time, the view the views on a video are probably going to be at least like 25 to 30% less. So let's say I, I, go, I go like I go or let, let's just say I do it where I can edit and I do a video and then it's published four hours after the game. Um, it'll be the, it'll be the third video out to other two other channels will have covered it. I'm going to get a lot less views. And then it's almost like, what's the point of doing it? So if you're if you're covering it, and I mean, I think a lot of people would have noticed this with like world championship matches and candidates. It's always a bit of a race to try to be the first person to get the recap out. Now, that's a little bit different, of course, than playing like the Grand Swiss. But nonetheless, um, if, if you are even even if I'm second by a few minutes, it doesn't matter 10 minutes, 15 minutes. But if you're hours later, uh, the views are going to be a lot lower on a video. So that is the um, that is actually the, ultimately the reason that I that I do it in one take versus like trying to pause and edit and all those other things. Because as you know, you have to render, you have to do these things. It's going to take time. Yeah. Wow. Well, thanks, Hikaru. That, that was great. Yeah, we usually try to keep it around one hour. But thanks for joining us. That was very enlightening. I think we all learned a lot about <laughs> what No problem. Uh, no problem. Like. Great. Um, are there any time. final things you want to set us right on? Because I know you were listening <laughs> to the pod and, you know, you had some disagreements with the things that we were saying. Not real. I mean, I wouldn't say it's disagreements. I think it's just that, you know, you know, the thing that's thing to me that is um, that's really uh, difficult about this, this whole world that I, that I, that I live in with, with everything happening online is that, you know, at the end of the day, there, there, there really is no transparency. So like when I say that I make a lot more streaming and making content creation yeah. than um than playing chess like without giving exact numbers it's very hard i think for people to understand um but you know it, it is like substantially more it's like five or six x at least versus what i made uh, you know in my best year playing chess professionally um right. and, and i think I, I think that's the thing is like when, when it gets to that stage like the, the whole mentality my, my view of a lot of things chess related 
have changed a lot since the since the pre-pandemic specifically for that reason and, and you know on some level i wish there was more transparency about all this stuff because i think if there's more transparency a lot of things that i say a lot of things i think that levy has said it would make a lot more sense as opposed to in many cases people assuming that we just make things up uh, you know if you just make it up for clickbait whatever like mm -hmm. you're just trying to be salacious and and so forth and uh, that that is maybe the one thing that i that i hope down the road at some point is like hopefully levy and i can can maybe at some point um Maybe, maybe we, we can be the ones to like sort of just lay out every lay, lay out all the cards and and explain all this stuff. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, I, I think that, you know, what what everyone does for the for the for sort of chess as a whole is very, very good. I mean, I think what you guys are doing is fantastic. And and I, I remember if I go back to like uh, 2020, even the, the the very early days of the boom and, and everything. And, you know, when one when, 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 when boat gets lifted, every every boat gets lifted. Um, so it's like, you know, if I do well or you guys do well or whomever it might be does well, at the end of the day, that is very good for everybody. Sure, it's not going to be distributed equally across the board. But nonetheless, I think everyone does um, does does better when when chess is doing better. And I think that that's very important. I, I just hope that, you know, as we move forward, people do keep that in mind, whether it's feedhs.com or others, but just that uh, the chess world can sort of try to act as a whole because what's good for one is good for all. Yeah, we're all on the team. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty, and we're going to be on Team Makaru at this candidate today, <laughs> man. That's going to be the real team. There well, we go. I, I mean, but actually, let, let me let me say one one one, one other thing. Yeah, this, sure. this is also another thing that, you know, I, I would since I just said things have shifted so much. But like if you go back to like 2017 or 2018, um, I, I, if you were to tell me like that, I'm going to be playing the candidates with Fabiana, for example, I would have been like, OK, obviously I want to win. But my other 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 part would be anybody wins but Fabiana. That, that would have literally been my <laughs> thought, because, of course, when you look at it back at the time, I mean, it's, it's very much like we're, we're pure competitors or both pro players like what, you know, we're both Americans, obviously, like if so if um, if Fabi qualifies for a match, it's horrible. And actually, in 2018, like I'm not going to lie, I was I was I was actually quite sad when um, when he qualified initially for the world championship match. But but now, I mean, I, I look at all these things so differently. And, and honestly, going to the candidates, I, I would say that, I mean, I really do hope that one of the two of us um, does qualify because looking forward, as, at least as far as American chess goes, um, I think that we're I mean, we have probably this candidate's maybe one more cycle where I think both myself and Fabiano have pretty good chances uh, to make it to a match and maybe win. But after that, I do think that um, I mean, it's, it's very hard to envision a world in like 20. It's what Kansas 24. So it's very hard to envision a world where in like 2028, Fabiano is still at the top of his game competing as like Prague, Kamer, Gukesh, everybody else. It's it's hard to envision that world. So um, so I, I think I, I think, you know, it's great that there are two Americans who are in the candidates and hopefully hopefully one of the two of us does uh, does make it through. Nice. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Good times. All right. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Thanks again, yeah. Hikaru. Thanks everyone for listening. And uh, yeah, that'll do it. That'll do it for All right. for the pod. See you guys next time. See you guys.